Good morning, everyone. How are y'all this morning? Awesome. Well, I invite you, well, you already took your seats, so um, now that you've taken your seats, uh, would like to just begin our time um, this morning as we look uh, at God's Word together, just to um, say it's an honor to be here, um, just looking around the room. Uh, it's a blessing to see so many faces that have uh, encouraged me and my family in our time here at the church, so uh, it's truly an honor to, to stand before you this morning. Um, all that being said, um, Brian asked me to fill in this morning, and so we, uh, while we're not going to be looking at the fundamentals of the family, we are, I think, going to be looking at something that is fundamental to the Christian life, and that is suffering, and how the Christian is to respond to suffering in this world. But as we begin, I'd like to invite you to join me in a brief word of prayer. Father, as we come before you this morning, we exalt your name and we bless your name, for you are our creator and our savior and our king. Lord, we bring our praise to you because you alone are worthy of all glory and of all honor and of all praise. Lord, I thank you for this church. I thank you for this wonderful body of believers that you are growing and strengthening uh, each day, each week here. Lord, as we come to your word this morning, I pray that these truths would pierce our hearts, that we would not just hear, um, and that these words would not fall on deaf ears, but that we would be changed by your spirit. Lord, we thank you for the privilege of gathering and fellowshipping together in your name. We ask all these things in the name of Christ. Amen. I once heard it said that Christianity has been built and carried through the generations of history on the blood of men. And in a day and time when there are many false gospels surrounding our ears, uh, health, wealth, prosperity, carefree life, a lot of things you heard this morning, these tropes that sound really good, but in actuality are empty and vain. I thought we'd spend a few minutes this morning looking at what does suffering look like? What does it mean to endure suffering in this life as a believer in Christ? And I could argue there's hardly a better book in Scripture to uh, help us with this task than the book of First Peter. Uh, this letter contains some of the most profound truths on suffering, on Christ, on His work for us anywhere. And so I wanted to do things a little differently this morning. We're going to be spending the majority of our time looking at uh, just five verses. But I also want to take this time to show how this entire letter it really together is aimed towards this idea of humble, submissive, holy living in the midst of trials and persecution and suffering. And I'll be completely honest with you, I debated just getting up here, reading the book of 1 Peter from beginning to end, praying and letting that be the end of our time this morning, because it really is, there's just so much wonderful exhortation and truth in this book, and there's so many profound teachings that we could spend our time on. But as we look at our passage this morning, it should raise a couple questions, I think, for us. How are we as believers to conduct ourselves with one another, both inside and outside of the church? How are we to think about the challenges and difficulties of being a Christ follower in this world? How are we to respond to actual persecution or mistreatment for the name of Christ? How are we to respond when we face intense suffering or persecution for our faith? And so in light of this ever Increasing, increasingly evil world around us, I think these are important questions for us to ask and for us to consider. We're constantly being bombarded 
from every possible angle, uh, being told how we are to live, how we are to act, how we are to handle conflict when we're being treated unfairly, how we are to claim the things that the world says are rightfully ours. Our culture is an eye-for-an-eye, tooth-for-tooth culture that, on one hand, promotes this retaliatory mentality all around us. If you pay attention to the box offices, revenge stories, uh, best-selling novels, all centered around personal revenge, are what sells, right? We love a good revenge story in our culture. Tabloids are filled with story after story of how someone got revenge on someone, whether this injustice, real or perceived, was committed against them. Sometimes we're even encouraged to avoid suffering at all costs. We're told to avoid that which causes uncomfort or uh, pain or anything that would rob you of pleasure in this world were to avoid it. If you're suffering, then something's clearly wrong. And if we're being honest, I think this mentality can slip into our own hearts. Even as believers, we know what the scriptures say about those who are called to follow Christ, those who are to carry their cross daily. But if we're not carefully guarding our steps, we can fall into the same line of thinking as well. We can look at the Lord with a questioning eye when we are suffering rather than going to him for care and comfort. Maybe it was your upbringing. Uh, I know for some people, uh, how you were raised has maybe contributed to this. How you lived prior to knowing Christ, where you were, your, your view of life was, hey, it's, it's fin for myself. Dog eat dog, right? And your life became about defending yourself at every juncture along the way. I also think maybe this highly individualistic culture we live in here in the West is maybe driven and drives to this day how we view suffering, how we view our lives. And if I had to guess, and I think I'd be spot on with this, we all struggle with remaining under self-control when we are experiencing suffering or reviling or persecution. It could be with someone within your own family. It could be an extended family member, someone who treats you differently because of how you love the Lord and treat them. It could be a coworker or a friend or someone that's hurt you deeply you could not even be related to this person. It could be a stranger, someone entirely unknown to you who has treated you poorly, who has treated you differently because of your faith in Christ. But as we'll see this morning, the Christian's response to suffering is drastically different from that of the world's. And so the question I want to pose for you this morning to consider is, how will you respond when you suffer for Christ? Whose advice are you going to listen to? Will you listen to the world or to the word? As I said, there's hardly a better book for us to spend our time in this morning than the book of 1 Peter. So if you haven't already, please open your Bibles to the book of 1 Peter. Now, if you will bear with me through a little lengthy introduction, uh, I think you'll see it's worth the wait. I want to set the stage for us this morning by looking at the context of our five verses this morning. Um, And so you might think of this as a five-verse sermon on the entire book of 1 Peter, um, but like I said, there's so much, there's so much good truth in here, it would, we'd be remiss not to look at as much as we can. So Peter has written this particular letter to a group of exiled believers. They're all through, scattered throughout Asia Minor. And a majority of them, as likely, came out of a background of Judaism. And they're now experiencing persecution and difficulty and suffering because of their new professed faith in Christ. And if you try to imagine the circumstances, it's not that hard to envision, right? This uh, primarily Jewish population has now left the the religion of their fathers, uh, so they've been told. They're converting to Christianity in large numbers. 
And this is undoubtedly making them the target of much persecution. So Peter's hope throughout this letter, as we read, is, is to exhort and admonish these weak, potentially discouraged, disheartened believers, how to press on, to endure, despite the weight of the world that seems to be overwhelming around them. And so to demonstrate this, I thought we could trace some of these exhortations, uh, beginning in chapter 1 up to our, our passage in chapter 3. So to do that, turn with me to the first chapter of First Peter, and we'll read verse 3 through verse 9. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance incorruptible, and undefiled and unfading, having been kept in heaven for you. You who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you have not yet seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, you believe in him. And you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, receiving as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. And so Peter opens this letter with a reminder that despite what the world may be bringing against these believers is a really encouraging reminder that this world, our inheritance, cannot touch. It cannot be touched by any worldly power or worldly threat. This inheritance is protected by the power of God. And Peter says it's necessary for us to sometimes be grieved temporarily. And that's an odd verse, right? If we're coming at it with an expectation of why would we ever suffer? He says sometimes it's necessary, it's needed. And the believers are to rejoice in this, and the reason for that is because the suffering is not pointless. It's just not suffering for the sake of suffering. The purpose in this suffering is the proving out of our faith. It's testing that our faith is genuine. He talks about gold being refined through fire, the same way gold is purified through intense heat and intense pressure. So is the Christian. And it's this hope that our inheritance of one day seeing Christ fully, that we can rejoice in glory and with joy, he says, inexpressible, even in the midst of unspeakable difficulty or trials. He goes on, look down with me at verse 13. He says, Therefore, having girded your minds for action, being sober in spirit, fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children not being conformed to the former lusts which are yours in ignorance, but like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves in all your conduct. For it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. So despite this suffering, this persecution, this this hard life that was facing these believers, Peter exhorts them, he says, to gird up your minds for action. What, What this literally means is... Gird up the loins of your mind, right? Prepare yourself. Get ready. Let's go. It's a call to action. It says, hey, we're not going to run from this. We're going to face it head on. Rather than trying to avoid this difficult situation, believers are admonished to prepare to act. But this action is not panicked. It's not reckless. It's not frivolous. It's sober. It's measured. It's focused solely 
on the grace that's to be revealed at the coming of Christ. And just for a moment, I'd like to ask you if you ever stopped and considered how insignificant the difficulties of this world are when they're compared to the glory that we will see at Christ's return. Paul says this momentary light affliction is working out an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. Romans 8, he says, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed in us. He says it's not even worth trying. You can't, it's, it's a waste of time. But please hear me clearly. I'm not by any means downplaying the severity of suffering in our lives. I'm not, I don't intend to make light of it. It's a real thing. We all face, different, face it in different ways. But I only hope as we spend our time in this text this morning to draw your eyes to Christ, to see that he is our true comfort. He's our true example of how to respond when we are suffering, when we are facing difficult times. He continues, turn with me to chapter 2, verse 11. He continues and he says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul by keeping your conduct excellent among the Gentiles so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good works, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. So this practical outworking that Peter is talking about of a a Christian's response to suffering is a holy life which is so stark in contrast to that of the pagan world that it actually leads these Gentiles to praise God. Believers are to be known for how they abstain from these fleshly lusts, and these things extend far. We hear that term, we think immediately he's just talking about you know, sexual sin or things like that, but fleshly lusts actually expand far beyond that. He's referring to any ungodly lust of the flesh. Galatians 5 says, The deeds of the flesh are evident. Papers are out of order. So the deeds of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these. So this list isn't even an exhaustive list. Any of these things are fruits of a flesh that is lusting after ungodly things. And we as believers are to abstain from them entirely. What's so amazing about this is that effect, right? This holy, submissive life that a Christian leads in light of suffering and persecution is the effect that it has on the unbeliever. Even though they may slander you, even though someone may falsely accuse you of certain behaviors, they may call you an evildoer when you've done nothing wrong, When the Lord returns to judge the earth, Peter says that they will glorify God because of your behavior. Instead of exhorting believers to go on the defensive or to campaign for their innocence, Peter admonishes these believers to continue pursuing godly conduct and ultimately to entrust themselves to God. So, he's written how to uh, submit to those who persecute us. He also uh, writes uh, in verse 13 of chapter 2 how to submit to the governing authorities. Look with me, uh, beginning in verse 13. Be subject for the sake of the Lord to every human institution, whether to a king as the one in authority, or to governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do good. 
For such is the will of God that by doing good you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. Act as free people and do not use your freedom as a covering for evil, but use it as slaves of God. Honor all people, love the brethren, fear God, honor the king. Servants, be subject to your masters with all fear, not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are crooked. For this finds favor, if for the sake of conscience toward God, a person bears up under sorrows when suffering unrighteously. For what credit is there if when you sin you are treated harshly and you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this finds favor with God. Now we could easily uh, spend the rest of our time just on these verses right here. There's so much in there that is so countercultural to the world in which we live. By submitting ourselves to our earthly institutions that the Lord has appointed over us, we are fulfilling the will of God. And we do that, and in doing so, we silence the ignorance of foolish men. We actually, we actually win by doing that. Christians are not to use their freedom in Christ as a license to sin. We're not to, as Paul says, continue in sin that grace may abound. And the key takeaway from these verses is really in verses 19 through 20. He says that we find favor with God when we take matters into our own hands and we exact our own revenge. No, he doesn't say that. He says we find favor with God when we bear up under sorrows, when we are suffering unrighteously. Meaning that if we are suffering and we've given no cause for this persecution... And we, then we've acted righteously. And this finds favor with God. Regardless of the outcome on this earth, the Lord is pleased by that behavior. Now, I think it's quite easy for a lot of people to claim persecution. That's not to say there isn't real persecution, there isn't real suffering. But I think a lot of times people like to bring it upon themselves, right? If you look closely, sometimes there is true suffering, there is true persecution. But sometimes people are just being rebellious, Sometimes they're being a lawbreaker. Sometimes they're sinning. Or they're, or they're just being a jerk. And they're calling that persecution. But that's not what Peter's talking about. He says, what credit is there if you are treated harshly if you sin? In other words, you should expect to be treated harshly when you sin. When you do the wrong thing. When you break God's law, it should be no surprise that you're treated harshly. It's only those that suffer for doing good, in other words, the will of God, that God finds favor in. So moving to chapter 3, Peter continues to exhort believers. He's moving in these different spheres of how to respond. Exhorts believers to live righteously when they're mistreated or not when they're not obeying God's word. And this time he moves into the context of the home. He says that husbands and wives are to submit to one another. Wives are called to do so when their husbands are being disobedient to God's word. Again, we see the same idea as the Gentiles He says that they are to do that so that they, by their behavior, might win their husbands to repentance. It's that same kind of idea. This testimony of godly living, even when you have done nothing wrong, bears witness to those who are either persecuting you, or in the case of the husband, who is not following God's word. Husbands are to also submit themselves to their wives in an understanding way. They're to show honor to their wives by being patient and kind. And so this brings us to our verses for this morning, and We're going to be looking at verses uh, uh, 8 through 12 for the rest of our time. But I hope as you'll see this this rather lengthy introduction, is giving believers instruction on how to handle those who are mistreating them in a hostile world, how to submit to government, and in the context of the family, how to endure righteously. Look with me at verses 8 through 12. 
or excuse me, 8 through, yeah, 8 through 12. He says, now to sum up, all of you be like-minded, sympathetic, brotherly, tender-hearted, and humble in spirit, not returning evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but giving a blessing instead. For you were called for the very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. For the one who desires to love life and to see good days must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. He must turn away from evil and do good. He must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, and his ears attend to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now, if we were to summarize the entire book of 1 Peter, I think you could do it in these five verses, which is why this is where we're going to be focusing our time this morning. And as we examine these verses, I want to highlight two directives to righteously endure the Christian life. Two directives to righteously endure the Christian life. And the first directive that Peter gives us here is found in verses 8 through 9, and it's that we are to pursue the purpose of our calling. Believers in this world are to pursue the purpose of their calling. And to do this, Peter gives us uh, five uh, characteristics or five attributes that the body of Christ is to display. Now, if you notice, he's switched here from talking just about husbands and wives to all of you. He's saying, to sum up, this is, this, is, this is everything I've been saying to you right here, and it's not just limited to husbands and wives. This is to everybody. Any believer is to be held to this standard. These are universal in their instructions. And we won't spend a ton of time on each, but I think it's helpful to unpack what they, each of these mean, what they uh, look like. And so the fact that Peter has to write about these things to this, to this body of believers tells us what? It tells us, that there can be times when believers are not doing these things. It tells us that this was a problem, or it can be a problem that we should look out for. He first says that we are all to be like-minded. Now, that doesn't mean that all of us have to agree on everything at every time. You know if you go to this church, we have members of this church who are fans of rival sports teams. We have members in this church that work in competing job industries, right? Uh, but nonetheless, except maybe on Rivalry Weekend, everything is harmonious <laughs> amongst the body of Christ here at this church. Being like-minded, what, what, what Peter's talking about here is something far greater and deeper than these surface-level affiliations, right? These, these affinity groups that we have in our day-to-day life. Being like-minded means recognizing that we are all members of the same body. And even though we are unique, we're different, We all are members of the same bodily purpose. Paul says in Romans 12, You who are many are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. So it's both and. You're not just members, and you're not just the body. You're both individual members of this same body. He later encourages us to be of the same mind toward one another, not being haughty in mind, but associating with the humble. Do not be wise in your own mind. A like-minded group of believers is known by their humility. They think the same things about the truths of God's Word. And I'm sure you've noticed this phenomenon too. I, I find it interesting and sometimes sad that there's a lot of churches and institutions that don't really take any particular stances doctrinally. You go to their webpage and there's three vague statements about belonging, believing, and stuff. There's no real hardcore 
belief in anything. And I think some people think that this actually is the, the way to unity by you allowing the most people to, to be a part of what you have going on. That's how you create true unity. But I think it's the exact opposite is what, is what happens. When you have no standards, when you have no confession, when you have no uh, stance on anything, what you do is you open yourself up to believing anything. And I think, to be quite honest with you, that was one of the sweetest draws to my family about this church. It's one of the sweetest aspects of the fellowship of this body is a commitment. If you've ever, if you, I'm assuming the members here have read through the, the doctrinal statement, but you know it's, it's not short. It's not three pithy points. It is robust. It is This is what we believe. And a body of believers should know what they believe. Otherwise, what are we doing? But not only that, these truths become a wonderful personal and corporate anchor in the time of suffering. If you don't know what you believe, you don't know where to turn to when suffering does come. So believers are to be like-minded. Peter also says that they are to be sympathetic. And this echoes a similar instruction Peter just gave to husbands and wives when he said to wives, or husbands are to live with their wives in an understanding way. He says in 1 Corinthians, if one member suffers, then all members suffer with it. And if one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. So we are not allowed, as the body of Christ, to be indifferent towards the plight of other believers. We're not allowed. We can't do it. And again, this runs contrary to the world around us. Whether we realize it or not, every Sunday you come here, there's likely someone sitting next to you in this room or in the, Sunday, or in the, uh, the main sanctuary who is suffering in some way. I think really far too often it's easy for us to show up on Sunday. We've, we're all dressed up. Big smile on our face. We act like there's nothing really going on. Everything's good. You know, hey, how are you doing? Good. I'm great. Awesome. And that's, that's, that's the interaction. And it's, it's southern hospitality to some extent. But if we're not careful, we come to church and we can hide what's really going on. We can cover it up with a smile, but in reality we're devastated by something that's going on that no one knows anything about. But how greatly does that minimize the role of Christ's body in serving one another? How greatly are we doing a disservice when we either withhold that information or we ignore those who are in need all around us? Neither is good. Both are forms of pride, and truth truth be told. One says, uh, I can handle this on my own. I don't need any help. The other says, I can't be bothered or inconvenienced to help. Both are forms of pride, just different sides of that coin. Believers are to mourn with those who mourn, rejoice with those who rejoice. We're not allowed to be insensitive or dismissive to the needs, joys, sorrows, anything like that of those around us. And this is also true of unbelievers. We're not to be that way towards them, but it's especially true within God's own household. Living sympathetically means patiently bearing out one another through the ups and downs of life. If the Lord is near to the brokenhearted, then his people must also be. Thirdly, Peter says we are to be brotherly. One writer describes this characteristic as a mutual affection for one another. Uh, If you have siblings, I hope you have experienced this. Uh, That special bond, right, with your brothers or your sisters that is unique. It's not like they're they're, they're more than friends, right? There's a special bond there. But the opposite is also true. If you have an estranged family, you know the pain when that bond is broken, estranged family members, estranged brothers and sisters, right? Those siblings, when they're not, when that relationship isn't healthy, it's, it's painful. 
But what Peter is talking about here goes far beyond the, the familial bonds that we know here on this earth. This brotherly bonds of affection is seen in selfless love displayed towards one another. Now, I don't know about you, I'm, I'm sure this is the case for most believers when you meet someone for the first time uh, who you find out is also a professing believer in Christ. It's a wonderful experience. There's almost an instant connection with that person who you may have never known five minutes ago. And you might even feel closer to them than you do your own family members because of that shared unity through his spirit. There's so many times I'll meet uh, a fellow brother in Christ, and there's just instantly this, I, I call it the foxhole mentality. There's just this instant connection where it's like, we would be in that foxhole together, side by side, and we look forward to that. We're so greatly encouraged by one another, you stand with that person throughout all the trials of this world. Psalm 133, which is probably one of my favorite psalms, it, it captures this mindset of brotherly affection so perfectly. The psalmist says, Behold, how good and how pleasant it is, for brothers to dwell together in unity. It is like the good oil upon the head, coming down upon the beard, Aaron's beard, even coming down to the edge of his robes. It's like the dew of Hermon coming down upon the mountains of Zion, for there the Lord commanded the blessing life forever. So this idea of this oil overflowing, this sweet fragrance, this sweet aroma, not just covering Aaron's beard, but it's, it's overflowing. It's now coming down onto his robe. This sweet fragrance, the dew of Hermon is, is illustrating that if you think about the region uh, where Israel is located, it's a very dry climate. Water is life over there. This dew coming down from the snow-capped mountains bringing life to this, this land. And this is the illustration that the psalmist is saying, this is what brotherly unity and affection looks like. We display this affection when we serve others in our body, the way we put our needs below those of those around us. We look out for everyone else's interests and not just for our own. When we humble ourselves and consider others more important than ourselves, this is the thrust of that brotherly, brotherly affection. Fourthly, we're called to be tenderhearted. Uh, this word, if you, if you look it up, it actually comes from a Greek word referring to the, the inner body parts, the intestines, your gut. So when we talk about being tenderhearted, what we're talking about is a compassionate disposition that comes from our deepest parts. We're told not to be hard-hearted towards one another or hold grudges. Instead, as Paul says in Ephesians 4, we are to be tender-hearted, graciously forgiving one another. Not just once, constantly. Constantly, graciously forgiving one another. Many of you probably know this firsthand. An unforgiving spirit can ruin families. It can ruin marriages, friendships, you name it. It's one of the most destructive forces in all the world. And it's heartbreaking for sure to see that happen in the world around us, but how much more heartbreaking is it to see take place within the body of Christ? When we are unforgiving, when we're unwilling to lay down our pride to be compassionate, to be sympathetic, to be tenderhearted towards one another. Peter's exhortation here is that we are to be known by our merciful disposition towards everyone, particularly those within the church. If you remember just a few weeks ago, Pastor Shane taught... Uh, through Jesus' own teaching uh, from Matthew 18, the, the story about the one slave who had been given a, a gift. He had been forgiven an immense debt. And what does he do? He turns right back around and goes and is unwilling to forgive a much smaller debt to someone who owed him money. And in eight, Matthew 18, verse 33, uh, 
The master asks this question, drives the point home. He says, should you not also have had mercy on your fellow slave in the same way that I had mercy on you? In other words, there can be no room in our hearts for bitterness, for grudges, for unforgiving spirit. And that's really what Peter captures here in this, in this, last, this last point. He says, the fifth quality is really what captures the heart of all is a humble believer is one that considers all other people more important than themselves. When a church is comprised of these humble servants, there is unity because no one's trying to be wise in their own mind. They're trying to outdo one another in showing love, in showing care, in showing service. That body demonstrates sympathy and tenderheartedness because that humble heart recognizes that caring for the needs and bearing, for the, bearing the, the, the burdens for others is far more important than just looking out for their own interests. And we know that. We know how much more fulfilling it is to bear someone else's burden than to constantly be unloading our burdens on others. All of these things together create this spirit of brotherhood within the body of believers that can encourage, pray for, care for, nourish, supply any of those needs in any circumstance. So verse 8 is an instruction for us how to handle relationships within the church. Verse 9 gives us the explanation for how this is to look dealing with those who are outside. He says, we are to be these five things. He says, you are to be... He says, you are to be like-minded, sympathetic, brotherly, tenderhearted, and humble in spirit. And then verse 9, not returning evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but giving a blessing instead. For you are called for the very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. Now, when we hear this verse, we're probably all thinking, yeah, that's great. All on board with that. But it's probably one of the hardest verses in Scripture to obey, if we're being honest. I, I thought about, as I was preparing this, just how many times have I wanted to return evil or have tried to return evil for evil? How many times have I been reviled and I shot right back? When we are struck, we feel that desire to strike back. We turn to the poison words of our mouth instead of turning the other cheek. And even if we've resisted this temptation a majority of the time, the author of Hebrews says none of us have resisted to the point of shedding blood. No one has done this perfectly. And sometimes these, these, these angry, biting, invo- it feels almost involuntary. It feels like it comes out of nowhere. And it's hard to resist. Where we've been reviled or if someone said something to us and your face starts to burn, your heart starts to beat a little faster and you just you, you want to lash out. You've got this silver bullet of a phrase that you're going to say that and they're going to bow the knee right there. They're going to repent. We convince ourselves that we're doing that because we're, ang- we're righteously angry. But in reality, we're just looking for an excuse to mask our pride. When we think of ourselves more highly than we ought to, we, when we are attacked, the desire to respond is not out of a desire to protect God's name, it's a desire to protect our own. And Peter's saying, you can't do this. This is not how a believer is supposed to respond to suffering. And so when we think about what it looks like to model this incredible level of self-control and to honor God in response to attacks, there is no greater example that we could turn to than that of our own Savior. It's consistent. This attitude is consistent with what Christ taught in his ministry. Jesus said, we're familiar with this from Matthew 5, blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness. Not unrighteousness, righteousness. 
for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad for your reward in heaven is great for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Luke 6, Jesus says, Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who disparage you. I don't know if you've ever tried this, but if someone's disparaging you, it's really hard to be angry at them when you're praying for them. It's really hard to hold that grudge or to want to respond when you're praying for that person, even though you know you may not have done anything wrong. Resisting that desire to defend ourselves is is hard, but it's something we must do. Because not only do we have Christ's teaching to follow, we have his own personal example. Obviously, if he taught it, he was going to walk it as well. Back in verse, or excuse me, back in chapter two of Peter, First Peter, he says, "What credit is there if, when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure? But if you do good and suffer for it and endure, this finds favor with God. For to this you have been called, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in His steps." He who did no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth, who was reviled, was not reviling in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but he kept entrusting himself to the judge who judges, to to him who judges righteously. We all know the story. When Christ was brought before Caiaphas, he was subjected to endless false testimony. He didn't answer a single accusation. He was spit on, he was slapped, he was beaten, he was struck. He didn't hit back. He stood before Pilate. He was accused by the chief priests and the elders. He didn't respond to a single charge. And all the gospel writers say that this caused Pilate to marvel greatly. Again, there's that testimony. The difference. He he expected him to, to lash out. He expected him to defend himself. When Christ was stripped, beaten, given a crown of thorns, a mock scepter, He was mocked as Israel's king, blasphemed by the people, insulted by the robbers on the crosses next to him. He did not retaliate. Instead, Peter says he kept entrusting himself to the one who judges righteously. And there's no greater example of who we are to model because there's no one more innocent or more worthy to defend himself than Christ, and yet he didn't do that. He chose not to. He displayed ultimate humility, ultimate selflessness, Peter says he bore our sins in his body on the tree so that having died to sin, we might live to righteousness. Talk about a blessing. Christ Christ demonstrated that. This is what it means to not revile, but to bless instead. If he had reviled, it would have negated the whole purpose of his suffering. Peter goes on to say, believers likewise are to do this. By virtue of who you and I are as Christ's followers, it is part of our identity in Christ to bless those who persecute us, to pray for our enemies, and not to revile them. In other words, we've been recipients, just like that story in Matthew, we've been recipients of immense grace. But in the same way, because of that grace, we are to now extend that mercy and that forgiveness to those who are outside of us. Because God has spared us from his vengeance, we are also, it sounds silly to think about, but we're also to spare those who persecute us of our vengeance. God has shown us mercy. We are to then turn and show mercy to those around us. When you think about it that way, how small and insignificant are our offenses, the things that have been done against us, when we compare what has been done to Christ 
how much he has been reviled, how much he was mocked. It's the same thing. We have no, we have no standing. We have no, no room. And yet Christ continues to show patience. He continued to endure patiently while he was on this earth. And I think he understood this mindset fully. I think his treatment on the cross and his, the way he responded is what led that centurion to say, truly this was the Son of God. Because everyone around him would have expected him to respond a different way. Our response to suffering is a testimony not only to the Lord, but also to those who do not know him. And we can trust that one day the Lord will make things right. It's not hopeless. There's a purpose in our suffering, as we've said. I think Christ responded the way he did. Again, the easy answer, Jesus, church answer, is not because he was the Son of God. He actually knew these things. He understood the truths that were laid out for us in the second half of our passage. And in verses 10 to 12, we'll see this second directive to righteously endure the Christian life. It's not, we're, all, we're first to pursue the purpose of our calling. We're also to remember the source of our hope. And that's really this motivation. That's how we're to be motivated to pursue our, to pursue our purpose. In verse 10, Peter quotes Psalm 34. He says, For the one who desires to love life and to see good days must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. He must turn away from evil and he must do good. He must seek peace and pursue it. And so if you ever, we won't do it today, this morning we don't have time, but if you ever go read Psalm 34, you'll see this is a psalm dealing with righteous believers suffering and how the Lord and the Lord alone delivers them out of that trouble. And it's true just on a practical level. uh, Those who uh, guard their tongue, uh, those who uh, keep their tongue from elite, if if you're not reviling people, if you're an honest person, you will generally avoid some trouble in your life, right? Liars don't have it as good, right? People who are slanderous, right? They're not looked upon well in society. So you can just, on an external level, you can follow these and, and have a pretty good life. But I think what Peter has in mind here is something far greater than just how to live on this side of eternity. I think what he's talking about here is talking about an eternal life, eternal good days, I think that for two reasons. One, if you look at Psalm 34, the entire context seems to suggest that. But also in the the grammar of this verse, verses 10 to 12 begin with a a specific conjunction in the Greek that give a further explanation to what Peter has just said. So he said everything he said in verses 8 to 9, and now he's saying, here's why. Here's the reason. These three verses serve as the purpose why we will inherit inherit a blessing. And that blessing is good days and long life through eternity with Christ. This is the salvation that Peter says in chapter 1 is ready to be revealed. It's anticipatory. We as believers long for this salvation to be revealed to us. So we must, to see this, right, the characteristics of a believer, someone who keeps their mouth from evil, they avoid wickedness, they pursue what's good. These are the marks of true Christian submissiveness. This is what should be said or observed in our lives when we are suffering. And some, and especially in this day and age, will even, I think some professing believers will argue that submission is weakness. That it's somehow giving up, that it's somehow throwing in the towel, but in reality it's quite the opposite. Because we know, 2 Corinthians 12, Christ's power 
is perfected in our weakness. It's made complete. It finds its totality when we are at our weakest. And people want to say that it's weak, but this, this level of righteous living, this amount of self-control to, re, to not revile and being reviled, requires a level of strength and a level of power that only can come from God's Spirit. It requires this divine aid through total submission to the Spirit to keep our tongues from deceit. That's why James says, if you can bridle the tongue, you're a perfect man. That's how hard it is to do. Right? It requires an immense amount of strength to honor the Lord in these, in these moments. But that strength can only come through the Spirit. And it's necessary that we strive to do these things when we consider the source of our hope. Verse 12, again, Peter quoting Psalm 34 later on in that psalm. He says, For the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, and His ears attend to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. And so the hope that I want to leave you with today is that even in the midst of trials, even in the midst of suffering, even in the midst of persecution, if you're suffering for righteousness' sake, even if you're by yourself, even if no one else noticed, the Lord knows. He knows. He hears your prayer. He sees you. The Lord will not forget those who have suffered for His name. And that's an encouraging truth because a lot of times it's easy to lose hope thinking no one notices No one sees what I'm going through. No one understands how I'm trying to endure and and live righteously. But the Lord knows. Those who submit their lives to the Lord here on earth will inherit a blessing far greater than any inclusion in this world or acceptance will ever be. Pales in comparison. Peter doesn't quote this part, but later in Psalm 34 it says, The righteous cry and and the Lord hears, and he delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted, and he saves those who are crushed in spirit. Many are the evils against the righteous. We should not be surprised when the righteous are persecuted. Many are the evils against the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. I think there's great encouragement, great hope that our suffering does not return void. Uh, it's, not, it's not purposeless. It's intentional. It's ordained. It's under the sovereign, watchful eye of the Lord. Because it brings him glory. The Lord will do nothing that robs him of one ounce of glory. So if suffering on this earth means bringing him glory, we should rejoice in that, as Peter says. There was a wonderful analogy that someone shared with me recently on how Christians should respond to suffering. And if you think about children, sometimes during a thunderstorm, They're scared, right? They don't quite understand what's going on. But kids don't run to their parents and ask them to stop the storm. Kids know their parents really can't do anything about that. They run to their parents so they can comfort them through the storm. And it's the same true as the believer. We know, except we know the Lord can stop the storm. And it's not wrong. It's not wrong to ask him to do that, right? We can plead with the Lord to to show us mercy in our trials, But we run to him not just for the purpose of avoiding the pain or avoiding the suffering. We run to him because we know he is that that anchor, that safe harbor that will protect us through that storm. And there's a great, that's such an encouragement. Because not only will the Lord do right by the righteous, he's also going to deal with the, the unjust as well. It may not be in this life, we may not see that. But there's hope that one day he will. On one hand, we as Christians, it's a, it's a bittersweet 
kind of paradox. We, we long and we hope and we pray and we really anticipate that many will be saved. And we hope that they see our lives and, and they, they see that witness borne out. But on the other hand, we can rejoice. The Lord will execute his perfect justice one day. As it's written in Romans 12, Never pay back evil for evil to anyone, respecting what is good in the sight of all men. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Never take your own revenge, beloved. Instead, leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. And if he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. You turn their insults right around and it's a blessing to them. So what should our response be? How do we look at all these things that the Spirit has commanded us to be? How are we to be like-minded, humble, sympathetic, tender-hearted, humble in spirit? How do you suffer righteously and not revile? How can we live lives that find favor with God for the right thing and not for living after our own desires, right? How do we imitate Christ's meekness? in the face of persecution. We do that, Peter says, through these few short verses. He tells us that first we are to pursue the purpose of our calling. We are to remember why we were called by Christ in the first place. We're to be be a blessing. But it's also we're to remember the source of our hope. We're to remember that those who desire to love life and to see good days will keep back their tongues from evil, their mouths from speaking deceit. They will entrust themselves to the Lord. We serve a very faithful, very compassionate God who will not let his righteous uh, be lost. He will not forget them or forsake them. And in due time, he will bring everything to bear, everything to light for judgment. So what are we to do? What is is the outcome? And I I thought a thousand different ways to try to to close this out, but I I really would rather just leave you with these words from the second half of Peter's first letter. He says, who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. Do not fear their fear. Do not be troubled. But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that you have, yet with gentleness and with fear. Having a good conscience so that in the thing in which you are slandered, those who disparage your good conduct in Christ will be put to shame. For it is better, if God should will it so, that you suffer for doing good than for doing wrong. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial among you, which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree you are sharing in the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing so that at the revelation of his glory you may rejoice with exultation. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Make sure that none of you suffers as a murderer, or a thief, or an evildoer, or a troublesome meddler. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, he is not to be put to shame, but 